All right. So uh, two weeks ago, this is our second week in the Life Apps Becoming Like Jesus sermon series. So our goal here is to become like Jesus out of love for Jesus. And today we're going to focus on not just the goal of liking and loving Jesus, but actually liking and loving one another as Christians. So that is our goal. We are to pursue Jesus and love him together as one holistic body. But before we jump into that idea, we need to recognize that there are some obstacles in place before we ever start that. And the first is our culture, right? Our culture is individualistic. So if you look at Americans, you see people who do what they want to do when they want to do it. They tend not to have a lot of obligations to other people. And so they think of themselves as independent, kind of free-floating beings. And so we are kind of up against a fight from the very beginning. Casey and I, uh, we encountered the individualistic culture uh, just this, uh, this, maybe a week ago, when we uh, invited someone over to our house. But it was kind of last minute, so we had to think to ourselves all of the cultural rules, right? Okay, uh, maybe, it, maybe it's too early, or like we didn't give enough notice. So what if they feel obligated to hang out with us? And what if they don't feel permission to say no? And then we'll be imposing ourselves upon them. We'll actually be, be doing them a disservice by inviting them to our house. That is how we thought about it. That is, quite simply, that is individualism kind of forcing itself upon a really good thing, an attempt to fellowship with fellow Christians and to love them well. So we, we have this barrier. I understand that. I'm recognizing that the Bible as a whole is asking us to do something that is very different than our culture, to be communal, to be together, to walk with each other in this life. I get that. And I also get that to be a Christian is one thing, but to be a, a churchy kind of Christian is a hard thing. Because that means getting to know other Christians and sharing your life with other Christians. And oftentimes, Christians can be terrible, right? <laughs> they can be terrible. That, I, I like to think of it that it says Christians, we are the one people that you could convince really are at core sinful and do everything bad. We are those people who have who've really believed that. We must really be kind of the worst of the worst. The one people who believe that. And so I recognize that giving ourselves to one another is a scary process. It's a painful process. And we don't want to carry each other's baggage. So we need some help if we are going to live as kind of a unified body in this church. We're going to have to hear what God says, what his vision is for this church, independent of both our culture and our sinful tendencies, what our hearts would want to do. So today, we're going to be constructing what I'm going to call the partnership app. The partnership app. It's my hope that this app, these kind of truths, are going to help us be knit together and learn how to do relationships in the church. And we're going to do that by looking at Philippians 1, the life of Paul. So when Paul does relationships in the church, he sees them as primarily rooted in partnership. A partnership one another. And this partnership is a sharing of a common goal. 
It's a sharing of victories and losses with one another, and it's a sharing of a common commitment. All right, so let's look at Philippians 1, 1 through 11, and see how Paul sees fellow Christians as partners in the gospel with a common goal, shared victories and losses, and a common commitment. Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at, are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. All right. So let's, let's take a look at this. So first of all, just to start, this is Paul's probably his most optimistic of all his letters. So he's, in general, he has a few problems with the Philippian church. They have some conflict. But as a whole, he appreciates them. And he is expressing his joyful thanksgiving for how these, these men and women of the church have been partners with him in the gospel. Look at verse 3. He's brimming over with thankfulness and joy. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. So Paul is praying for his fellow believers. Now, I would probably be content with you guys just praying for one another. That would be a real close-knit community. But he goes further. He's actually making these prayers with joy. And he prays because he wants an opportunity to thank God for these fellow believers in his life. Now, that is, that is a rich blessing. That is true love for this church. And we want to learn how to do that. So that is our goal in this text, to learn why he is so full of joy and thanksgiving to have fellow Christians, brothers and sisters. And so why, why is he so thankful? Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Right. So Paul sees relationships within the church as a partnership. Now what does that partnership entail? It means a kind of a shared investment, a shared appreciation, a shared commitment to anything. And it also means kind of a, a joint investment in that thing. So that with your partner, you're going to take each other's losses, and you're going to take each other's profits. If they fall, you fall. If they rise, you rise. That is what partnership in the church is supposed to look like. So take, take a three-legged race. All right, what do you share in common? You share a leg, right? <laughs> and what is your goal? 
to win. Yeah, that, yeah, not to have fun. It is not to have fun. It's to win. All right. And literally, you will rise and fall with your partner. They fall down. You fall down. If you get up, you have to pull them up with you. And you will win and lose together. You make it across that finish line together, not as individuals. You are a team. And so what does that mean for you who are in the church? This is not a competition. Being at church is not a competitive sport. Now, what do I mean by that? You're going to know that this is a competitive sport if you're treating this like religion. Religion is all about competing to to get to God, to beat the other guy. Because only so many people can please God. Only so many people can, can be the good ones. And so we're always on this ladder kind of fighting with each other to get to the top. What does that look like when competition has taken over the church, when it has turned religious? Well, what happens when you meet someone who seems to be really good, a better Christian than you are, more holy, more sanctified? They seem to read their Bible more. They just praise Jesus all the time. Do you ever feel insecure or threatened? Like, oh, well, maybe I'm not as good of a Christian. You start to feel guilty. Or maybe you feel uh, kind of threatened and you, you want to pull back from them. Or maybe you take it so far as you, you feel this kind of inner need to pull them down with you, to knock them down a few pegs, to show them that, no, they're really not a very good Christian. And so you find yourself imagining things like, well, I bet if I, if I saw what their marriage is really like behind closed doors, it's probably not as good as it looks. Or they probably have some secret sin that they're hiding. Everyone does. I just haven't seen it yet. Or you might think, okay, so, so they're good, but they're probably cold-hearted towards God. They don't really love him as passionately. Now, why do we do that? We do that because we are still on that ladder. And what we're doing is we're, we're comparing each other and saying, it's my relative goodness that makes me acceptable for, before God. And good people are a threat to my righteousness. Maybe I'm not as good as I want to be. Maybe I'm not as good as them. Maybe God won't accept me. That's competition in the church. But there's another side to that coin, right? What if you're the people who feel like you're on top? That you are the top of the heap. You're at the top of the ladder. You are doing well with God. Now, those kind of people, besides just being prideful and superior you're going to kind of despise the people who are below you, who are trying to climb the ladder. You're going to be kicking at, their, kicking at their hands. Don't hang on to me. Leave me alone. Don't bring me down. I'm the holy one, and I need to protect myself. The good people kind of pull away from the bad people because bad people there, that'll corrupt my company. And you end up rejecting and pushing them away. Now, those two groups, they're going to have a very different relationship to to the church as a whole. So the people who feel bad, they're going to hate the church. They're going to hate going there because they feel like they're losing. But the people on top, they're going to love going to church because this is their home turf. This is where they kind of get their pats on the back that they really are good people. 
Now, this is not the love or the hate of the church that we are going for. I don't want you all just to feel like Pharisees and that you are the people on top. The thing is that we shouldn't be making those comparisons. There is no ladder here. Both those behaviors, to look down on others or to look up and feel guilty, is proof that we don't understand the gospel yet. That we are still trying, like striving to, to prove to God that we are righteous, that we are good enough. We should truly be able to rejoice with people who are doing well in Christ and should long to, to bring those who are struggling up with us. That is a real manifestation of the gospel. We do not need to feel guilty or threatened or pulling other people down. Because remember last week we talked about what, what good works are? Good works are dirty diapers and trash. They do not earn our way to God. We are not perfect people and therefore we are sinners. Even if you're the, the very, very best of the sinners, you are still a sinner. That doesn't get you into heaven. You can beat everyone else out and still go to hell because you need to be perfect. You need to be perfectly righteous before our perfect and holy Father and God. So, church is not a competition. And we need to move away from treating it like a competition. People, these people here, look around. These are not your threats. These are your partners in the gospel. And you should treat them like that. All right, so when I'm talking about partners in the gospel, that can seem kind of sterile. Okay, we're partners. But it depends on what we're partnering with. If your partner's in business, that might be a kind of sterile relationship. So you share... Nah, maybe not. Maybe, maybe if you really love money, then it's, then it's a very vibrant relationship. But uh, you mostly just share money. You share a common goal to gain money, and you share the financial losses and profits. But there's other, other kind of partnerships. Let's take marriage. And in marriage, you share a partnership that entails every single thing. It entails your, your kids, your time, your hopes and your dreams. You share all of those things. And so that kind of partnership, a marriage partnership, is vibrant and full of life. It entails the emotions and the passions. It entails everything about ourselves. So the question is, what kind of partnership is a partnership in the gospel as Paul talks about it? Well, a partner in the gospel is a mutual sharing of Jesus Christ. A mutual sharing of Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ for us? Jesus Christ is the one who has suffered unto death, who has defeated sin, who has raised us from death to new life, who is currently our life in the present. And so accordingly, this life is to be lived completely for Jesus because we wouldn't have a life without him. So then, as, as Jesus comes to kind of encompass and really command and demand things from our life, we're going to have more to share with other believers. As two people are consumed with Christ, they, they naturally move towards each other. Their lives blend. They become all about the same things. But realistically, the strength of our Christian bonds are only going to be so strong as our commitment to Jesus 
So if our relationship with Jesus is kind of just thrown off into the corner, we have our, our Jesus time is Sunday mornings, and maybe the quick prayers here and there, then our relationships with each other are going to be just as superficial, just as weak, just as chaotic. And so when we look at our relationships in the church, it's actually a good diagnostic test of how connected we are to Christ. So there's a second group of people who don't like this church stuff. Right? We talked about the people who feel like they're at the bottom of the ladder. They don't like church. But also people who just don't feel much of a connection to Jesus, they don't like church. Why should they be connected to a bunch of Christians that they have nothing in common with? So, our connection to each other is our connection to Christ. It reveals that. But that, that might be bad news, but there's good news here too. There's good news here. As we strengthen those bonds with our fellow believers, we actually grow in understanding and knowing Christ. It goes both ways, right? So that loving each other helps us love Christ, and loving Christ helps us love each other. So today, you may feel like, oh, I don't have that great of a relationship with Jesus. Uh, maybe this is, just isn't for me. No, let's learn how to love each other, and in doing so, we'll learn kind of who Christ is for us. All right, so part one of our partnership is to share the goal of Christ. Paul and the Philippians, they share this common goal of reaching the day of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 6. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul knows that the Philippians entered into the gospel in the past, and they are presently saved and living in the midst of that salvation now. But then he projects into the future. He looks into this future trajectory and sees the day of completion. The day when Jesus Christ is going to return and make us all perfect in him. And he's going to sanctify us completely. And he sees these Philippians, these men and women, he sees them right alongside him at that final day, perfect and righteous in Christ. And that, that is the reality of the Christian life. We are all going to go to that place. Because, just as it said, it's, it's he who works in us. It's not your job to get there. Christ is working to bring us to that eternal glory. And he's going to make that happen. And accordingly, because it's Christ doing it, no one gets there ahead of anyone else. Right? Nothing you do is going to get you to the new heavens and new earth a second faster than anyone else. We are all in this together. And so, Paul doesn't kind of focus in on the individual sins of the individual Christians. That's not his concern. He's looking at the larger picture of the people's future glory in Christ. Now, what if we looked out at fellow Christians and didn't see them for their present sin, but saw them for the glory that they would have in the future? Imagine how, how beautiful it would look for that. Like, to know each other as that. To not see each other in light of our present sufferings and our present sins. Because when we end up zooming in on these on just the sins of our fellow Christians, 
oftentimes we're usually just demanding that they become more sanctified more quickly, that they work harder, and we end up completely compromising the gospel. What would it look like if instead you really did reinforce the fact that, no, you're not perfect, but you are moving towards perfection, you are moving towards this completeness in Christ because it is he who is working in you. That's where I think the perseverance of the saints, right? That is boring theology, the perseverance of the saints. But it can actually become real and tangible when we use it to think about other Christians. When we look at them and see them not just for their sin, but for who God is turning them into and how God is changing them and working in them, that we have that guarantee. You know that annoying person? We can take, take solace in the fact that really God is going to work out that annoying stuff. And we're going to treat them as their future selves, not as their present struggling self. All right, so next time, let's just do it right now. Think about the Christian who most annoys you. All right, don't, don't point to them or anything. All right. <laughs> and now your task is to think of them in their future glorified state. What might they look like? In that state, God actually turns the biggest flaws into the greatest glories. Do you know that person who's incessantly talking about themselves? They're going to be incessantly talking about Jesus. And they're going to be kind of a beacon of someone who communicates the glory of Jesus Christ because they just can't get enough of him. They're the talkers, and they're going to keep being the talkers, but they're going to be the, the glorified talkers who love Jesus. Or think about the anxious people who kind of put all their problems on you, and you feel, uh, just leave me alone. Those are going to be the people who have the greatest faith in God, who trust in his strength because they recognize that they are weak. They're going to be glorious in heaven. They're going to be beautiful creatures. Or take... Take the greatest sinners who just seem to do everything wrong. The Bible tells us that they're going to be the ones who are the most joyful, the most excited that they are forgiven, that they are even in heaven. That is going to change how we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not to think about their current struggles, but where we are all going. Knowing that, yeah, it's not, it's not us that it's, we're not going to glorify ourselves. They're not going to glorify themselves. And even more, we shouldn't be playing the role of the Holy Spirit, trying to, to glorify other people and fix them and change their problems, root out sin in them. No, we're together on this journey, and we know where we are going. And we can run together knowing that we are all moving towards glory. All right, that takes us to our second point, what is the next thing that we share? We share in our common victories and suffering. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, Paul is saying something actually pretty, pretty clear here. He appreciates that they have been partners with him in grace. When I say grace, I mean the free gift of God. 
Grace is a free gift, and he appreciates that they have received the same free gift. Generally, Paul is talking about the free gift of Jesus Christ, salvation in him. But Paul actually specifies that there's more than that. He's received other free gifts than just Jesus. He's also received the free gift of my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So God gives us all kinds of gifts. And one gift that Paul was given was imprisonment. That is a free gift of God's grace right from God's hand. And Paul recognizes it as that. He recognizes that suffering is actually a gift of God that proves that Jesus Christ is, is all over his life, that he is worthy to suffer in the name of Jesus Christ. He glories in that gift. He shares that, he shares that gift with the, with the Philippians, actually. He recognizes that, yes, this gift is terrible, but it is working towards the ultimate goal of finding Christ, of moving us towards him. And so he has learned to say with Job, shall I receive trouble, sorry, should I receive good things from God's hand, but not troubles? He is willing to receive the bad things as well as the good. And the Philippians, accordingly, are following Paul's example. And they're willing to receive the bad things as well as the good. They suffer with Paul in his imprisonment. All right, so some, some ancient, ancient prison uh, I don't know, analogies or something. Uh, when you were chained up in the ancient world, there was no mess hall. There was no yard. You were just chained in your cell and left to die unless people came to take care of you. So when Paul appreciates the Philippians helping him out in prison, he's thanking them for saving his life. He could have been left there to die, but they sent him food. They sent him water. They sent him provisions. They sent him help. People who would help support him in the prisons. And so he's appropriately thankful that they didn't just let him die. We can get that. That's pretty clear. We would appreciate that as well. But the Philippians could have said, well, Paul, like, you got yourself in there. We don't want to take part in your suffering. That's not really our suffering to deal with. That's your suffering. And they could have just let him, let him be there. But they recognized that actually Paul was the suffering from God's hand that he was giving them. He was giving them a person as their suffering. Someone to, to bear with. Someone to support. In the same way, there are going to be hard people in this community. There are going to be hard people that God is going to give us to care for. And the reality is that those are people who God is giving you. They are from his very hand. Oftentimes we just get obsessed with the people and say, these people are annoying, these people are terrible. Why don't they just go away? Because God has given them to you. And just as Paul's imprisonment was for the glory of God and so that he may find Christ, those hard people in your life, they are for the purpose of sanctifying you and helping you to understand Jesus Christ more. That is a hard lesson to learn, but that is the lesson. 
And the Philippians, they receive that willingly. They take Paul on as their burden. But, all right, that's, that's kind of the, the sad part. There's a happy part to this, right? <laughs> we also get to share in each other's triumphs and each other's victories. So because the Philippians were supporting Paul and making sure he was alive in the prisons, when Paul preached the gospel and new people came to faith through Paul's preaching and in that prison, they could legitimately rejoice with him because it was as much their victory as his. They were supporting him. They were with him. He wouldn't be alive without their support. And so they can accordingly not get jealous, but get excited about fellow successes. That is actually one of our goals, that we have the victory, share the victories in one another. We don't need to be competitive and jealous about those things. And then as an additional success, kind of when we enter into the lives of suffering people, we get to see the God of all comfort. We get to see God working, God loving, God caring for the needs of people. Now, when I do counseling, I didn't expect that. But I realized that I'm just as blessed as they are because I'm struggling with the same things and the same things that I'm telling them, the encouragement I give them is encouragement to me as well. As we share in people's sufferings, we also share in their growth and in their blessing, in the work that Christ is doing. God gives good gifts to his children. And it's suffering, the, the bad things, but also these victories. And when we are united as one body, we can share those things. We can all grow from each other's sufferings, and we can all rejoice in each other's victories. So then, what are we called to do? We're called to share your hardships with other people. Tell them. Talk about them. Don't hide them. And also, I, I'm, I'm terrified to do this, but you can share your victories without coming off like you're a prideful boaster. Because the goal is that they would actually get to rejoice with you, that we would get to rejoice with one another. That's actually the goal in the Bible, in the Bible study, the, the Sunday school. We talk about ways we've shared our, shared our faith. And I think that's so fun to rejoice that, like, oh, people are hearing the gospel. People are being invited to church. We get to share in that together. All right. That brings us to the final thing we share. We share a commitment to grow in Christ. Look at verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right, so we heard about Paul praying for the Philippians. Now we actually get to see what was he praying for. He was praying that their love would abound more and more. Now, a side thing is, is he praying for their love for Christ or their love for one another? And I think it doesn't actually ultimately really matter because those things go hand in hand. If you love Jesus, you're going to love fellow Christians. If you love fellow Christians, you're going to be forced to love Jesus more because that's the only way you're going to tolerate them. So Paul is praying that their love would abound, but 
more importantly, notice here that this love isn't just kind of some warm, fuzzy feeling. He specifically tells them that this love entails knowledge and discernment. You don't just kind of sit around and wait for this feeling of overwhelming love to come over you that you may love your fellow Christians better. It is with knowledge and discernment. You're seeking to know and understand the people who you are trying to love. You ask them what they need. You ask them how they are struggling. And the hope is that you would know their story so you could actually anticipate the things they're going to struggle with. You can anticipate kind of, oh, that was a hurtful comment. I probably should have known that. That's the kind of knowledge we want to have of one another. We can encourage each other with the things that they actually need to hear. And that is our final goal. Our goal is to know each other so we can encourage one another. That you may approve what is excellent. That is the goal of knowing and discerning and loving well. That you may approve what is excellent. Now, rebuke is often far too easy. Right? You could probably come up with half a dozen rebukes for me of the sinful things that I struggle with. I could probably do the same for you. The person next to you could probably do that. You could probably throw, sling back six things for them too. But that's easy. That's not the goal here. The goal is that we know each other so well that we'd actually be able to encourage the things that God is doing in their lives. Now, what might that look like? That might look like seeing the things that they're being convicted of. That itself is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, to be convicted of sin. Or it might be uh, ways that they are repenting, ways that they are confessing their sin to God. Or it may be ways that they actually are changing to look more like Jesus. We need to know each other well enough so we can see those things and encourage them. We can point them out and say, really, God is working in you. And he is going to bring you to your final destination. All right. So the hope is that we would be moving more and more towards Jesus Christ. That we become pure and blameless. Full of the fruit of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That really is our goal here and now. That is what Paul prays for. And we understand that that is a big calling. That is a really big calling. And we aren't going to get there unless we have each other's backs. Unless we are legitimately encouraging one another. Because we are going to fall and fail and faint. We're going to trip up and mess up and give up. And we need to be there not to condemn when that happens. But we need to be there to encourage to push on towards Jesus Christ. All right, so let's get practical. First step, get to know each other. And I don't mean like, okay, get to know each other's names. No, you need to know each other as kind of fellow warriors in the battle. You need to know each other's, the chinks in each other's armor so that you can bring your shield up and protect them. We are battling and we are fighting together and need to know each other well enough that we would know if someone's getting beat up or not. 
Oftentimes we hide all that. We often don't share it, and we also don't ask because we don't really want to know. That's going to cut us off from being a real Christian community that is fighting for one another. All right, so how do you do that? Casey mentioned. You might ask someone to, to eat with you, have people over to your house, go do something with people. Just get to know them. Make sure it happens. Uh, I've had the conversation a lot where it, it looks like, oh, like, did you know, do you know this person? No, I've never met them. Like, no, they, they've been going here for this whole year, just as long as you have. We really need to be better about that and getting to know each other. We are a little church, and there are strengths of a little church, but we've come from a big church. And I think we've carried over a lot of the weaknesses of a big church into this little one. Right? And we are individuals. We are bad at getting to know each other. So my charge is that we would be closer-knit so that we really can do this encouragement. All right, next application. Like Paul, we need to pray for one another. We need to pray for one another. Because when you're praying for one another, you're building one another up. When you are not praying for one another, you're not just like, we think of our, our quiet time as our me time. But our quiet time is actually not just for us, it's for all the other believers in the body. So if we neglect that time, we neglect our whole body. If we are growing in God, we as a whole are growing together. We are often kind of rob our fellow believers of the prayers that they need by failing to pray to Christ for them. Now, I've been convicted of that this week a lot. Because I, I have been thinking of my quiet times as my individual Jesus and me time. But it is much more than that. We owe each other more than that. All right, thirdly, encourage one another. We are called to approve what is excellent. Now, oftentimes we think of, of encouragement as just kind of nice compliments. We're doing more than just complimenting each other. We're reminding people why we are doing what we're doing. Why do we love Jesus Christ? Why do we try to be obedient? Why does this matter? We remind people that you really are the children of God. You are beloved by an eternal God, the Savior of the world. He gave himself fully for you. He loves you. Obedience to his commands is for your good. Those are the kind of things that we need to be telling each other. Because otherwise, we have a really long road ahead. And we need to be supporting one another in that long road. And so my final, my final point is my encouragement for you guys. Why do we do all this? Why are we striving towards Jesus? We are moving towards that day of Jesus Christ when we will be with Jesus in heaven, that glorious and beautiful place that we've been talking about. We talked about that for six weeks. We are moving towards that place. But even more, we are moving towards the person who lives there. We are moving towards Jesus Christ. We are moving towards the one who loves us and cares for us, who perfectly and passionately loves us. Let's really run towards 
that God, that one who saves us, he really is the greatest of all treasures. He is the most valuable person, the most valuable thing. Let us cast aside all of the hindrances and run towards him. And let's run towards him together as one mutual body, as partners in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us partners to run this race with, partners to, to wage battle with. Father, I ask that we wouldn't be petty people who are competitive and fighting and pointing out each other's sins, but that we'd be pointing each other to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Father, would you show us how to do that? Would you teach us how to do that? that we may have more of you, more of the Savior who has given himself for us. Father, help us in these things. Fill us with the Spirit. And fill us with a deep love for you. We pray in Christ's name.